Hey everyone, before we get into the body of this episode, I just wanted to give it a quick bit of context. This interview was done in early spring 2022, while the world was just exiting the Omicron wave of COVID. So dealing with COVID protocols was very much at the top of the minds of my guests at this point. So with that said, let's get to it. You're listening to Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. Loop Group is an important part of bringing a film, game, or series to life. Loop Group can take a scene that feels flat and lifeless and elevate it so it feels like it's bursting with energy. If done right, Loop Group can sell emotions, focus attention, and add tension. But it's the doing it right part that can be tricky. That is why we've assembled a dream team of folks that can talk us through the best practices, do's and don'ts, and pass on their hard-fought lessons that they've learned from their countless Loop Group sessions. Joining us today from London, we have Nina Hartstone. Nina won an Oscar for her sound work on Bohemian Rhapsody. She was last on Tonebenders in our episode 94 talking about her work on that film. She told us a story about how she organized a special outdoor loop group session so that the crowds would sound more realistic. And it really showed her passion for loop group. So we had to get her back on for this talk. Welcome back, Nina. It's great to have you on again. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me on again. We also have Brian Bowles with us. Brian is a busy dialogue supervisor based in New York City. His past projects include Uncut Gems and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, as well as many, many more. Welcome, Brian. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. To give us a different perspective, we have a goddamn legend joining us today. When you ask around the East Coast about who is the best to record ADR and loop group with, the response will almost always be Bobby Johansson. If you have a favorite film since the mid-90s, chances are good Bobby recorded some of the voices for it. Based out of Harbor Post in New York, welcome to Tonebenders, Bobby. Thank you for having me and for that uh, great, I find not true, but uh, introduction, but thank you. Finally, to give us a game audio perspective, we have Tim Atkins. Tim has worked as a voice designer on the Far Cry series, The Division, and lots more. I saw Tim do a talk in Montreal a few years ago and was blown away, so I'm glad to have him with us today so we can pick his brain. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Okay, the idea for this talk is to dig deep on the ins and outs of having a successful loop group session. Although all my guests have extensive experience with loop group, let's imagine someone that is jumping up a level and working on their first feature. What advice are you going to give them to start to prepare for their first loop group session? So let's start with the prep work. Nina, how do you go about breaking down exactly what the script needs and then turn that information into planning a loop group session? I mean, loop group is one of such, such a fun aspect, actually, of, of our job. We look at the pictures and we start thinking about how we're going to record the crowd. I mean, in an ideal world, we're thinking about this even earlier, to be honest. If we are engaged in pre-production and we read the script, we'll start looking and go, OK, hang on a minute, you're going to get a load of extras on set here. They're all going to need voices in post-production. So we will look through and we'll start trying to think about the best, most authentic way we can go about giving voices to all those extras who appeared during the shoot. And we'll go through and we'll start breaking it down into how many voices do we need to get in? What kind of split do we have? Have, what gender split, what nationality split, are there any foreign languages that we need to be thinking about? And that's the sort of, that's populating the extras who you see on the screen. There's other 
areas where the loop group might come in useful as well. There might be a scene that's maybe got a TV show running in the background or a radio. We'll also be using our loop group to create the content for that more often than not. Uh, they might be pretending to be a sports presenter. So you've got a sports show uh, playing off, off of the TV or doing a radio show for us. So voice actors do provide quite a, an important role in our soundtrack, particularly in a film that's got an awful lot of extras in it. Tim, is it similar for uh, game audio? Uh, actually, it kind of is similar, yeah. AAA, so-called AAA gaming uh, production cycles tend to be pretty long, but it's something we need to think about early in pre-production as well. The same sort of considerations that Nina mentioned in terms of gender and that kind of thing. And also, how big a role do crowds play in this particular game? Is it a pillar of game design to have large crowds? Because it's quite a tricky thing to actually pull off in games to have a large amount of NPCs or non-playable characters on the screen at one time. It's very uh, memory and processor intensive. So in order for that to happen, it's a very deliberate decision made early on. From there, we need to decide when in the production cycle we're going to actually tackle the Waller recording or the loop root recordings. And it tends to be towards the, the end because games are constantly in flux and changing all the time. So the late we can push it, I guess it's exactly the same in, in post. Less likely you're going to have to get that loop group back in, do more recordings uh, for something that's completely changed. From there, it's kind of looking through, talking with the narrative team and the AI teams, of course, and collaborating with those departments pretty closely, and also looking at the scripts as they f start to form. Traditionally, I'll start looking at the cinematic uh, linear cutscene scripts. That's usually where a lot of the loop group action is happening traditionally in a lot of the games I've worked on. And also from there, I get, I get um, notes from sound designers who think their missions that they're designing sounds for will need some crowd. I'll look through all the mission scripts as well and take notes. But then I just keep asking the narrative team, do you need crowd for this? Do you need crowd for this? Because uh, it's not something they're necessarily thinking about at the forefront of their mind, whether they need those kind of sounds. But um, obviously we, we in the voice team are so got to keep keep at them really <laughs> so brian you have gone through the script you figured out kind of where you need the loop group yeah what's your next step on preparing for the actual session uh well preparing for the actual session is uh you know i go through and i i cue based on what i'm seeing and what i'm thinking about from the scene and what may have come from the spotting sessions with the director you know but i'm thinking about how i want voices to fill up a given space you know, are we in a busy cafe or are we in a small, quiet, you know, candlelit, uh, you know, restaurant? Are we in the subway? Are we in a, you know, a protest? Are we just on the streets of New York? What neighborhood? Um, so I'm thinking about how I want voices to interact as we're moving through with our characters. Um, and so I'm cueing based not only on where I think I could get a voice to, you know, attach, if you will, to a person on screen, but also what are the, what's the effects team going to need out of actual crafted pseudo sync dialogue for the scenes? Because sound effects libraries, as vast as they are, don't give you the, the real tactile sound of what Loop Group can do. And, you know, and then I'm thinking about, is the scene a happy scene? Should we be hearing happier voices? Should we be juxtaposing a happy loop group to a sad scene? Should we be, you know, how can we be coloring the the frame as I'm thinking about cueing this stuff so that ultimately when we get on stage, uh, you know, I've got some directing thoughts on what to get the actors to work on. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is 
how many people I want to bring into the studio and how many days I want to record versus how many the production wants to pay for. <laughs> Creatively and comfortably get into that conversation from a creative, beneficial perspective and not necessarily from just a brass tax, budgetarily, you know, budget perspective. If possible, I like to bring in a loop group early in the movie so that we can get some sounds in and attached and working um, so that the rest of the show can start to see, oh, no, we can do more of this. We can get more in. And it gives us a chance to, like, craft it and fine-tune it as we get through to the end. It doesn't always work that way. But that's, uh, <laughs> that's you know, that's always a goal of mine to get in as many possible days um, as Loop Group on a job. So are you actually writing script for the actors? Uh, what I do is I jot down sort of, um, you know, I think about it, it, it is improv for the most part. And so I'm sort of jotting down like just bullet points, like think about this, think about this, so that I can plant those ideas in the actors' heads so that they can then do what they do, which is act and you know, and perform. They can take that and come up with something that then hopefully feels organic and natural. But, you know, some jobs need a very specific script. I may write it, but it may also get punched up by the director. They may put it in the hands of the actual writer who's getting the credit. It, it, it comes and goes. Sometimes we're just coming up with things live on the day in the room. You know, if you have to do like, a, like an EMT worker or a, an ambulance driver or something like that, the loop group actors have books of cheat sheet stuff that is some nomenclature, codes, language that's used. Um, but you prep your loop group you know, as you're coordinating and dealing with your, your casting agents, you're coordinating with them and saying, hey, we have a scene that's here, we have a scene that's like this, we have a scene that's like that, so that they can be interfacing with their actors and getting that stuff put together so that um, everybody is showing up as best prepared as possible. Lots of people wear the writing hat. So, Bobby, when you have a session booked with you, what do you demand? Not maybe demands, not the right word. What are you expecting to get ahead of time? Demand is the right word. <laughs> demand is the right word. <laughs> what do you need to get ahead of time and how much ahead of time, I guess? Well, this is, are we talking COVID or are we talking pre and post COVID? That's a whole different story. So, are you talking about in the studio if everybody was in the, on the stage here or? Sure, let's start with that. Okay, let's start with that. You know, the studios were a lot bigger back in the day, and we used to have bigger rooms here in New York. I still have a very big size room, one of the biggest, if not the biggest in New York, but it's definitely scaled down space-wise. So when you're fitting 15 people, 15 group actors in this room, it does get tight. So I usually need to take the podium out and get everything set up. The majority of loop groups are recorded mono because you don't want to over really think it. There's no reason to record in stereo unless it's for something you know, sound design that you need it for. So what I'll do is I'll hang a, a, a mic and I'll put lines on the floor and then I'll hang a far mic, one in the ceiling. And then, you know, I have my mics all kind of over the, around the room. I'll put them, again, I'll put a mark and then I'll put a smaller mark when I need something that's going to be a lot more on mic, which is never really more than four feet away. It's, it, we, we, all this stuff is recorded with a lot of space. The key to uh, group in the studio, this, I actually enjoy doing it very much because, um, you get to fuck around with different mic techniques. You can't really ruin, it's not like you have a, an actor who's you know, in here and you, you wanna try something different and if it goes wrong, they have to do it again. It's okay, as long as it's not time consuming, if something doesn't sound right, say, all right, hold on for a second and let's, let's start it again. With group, it's mixed usually down at an effects level, so 
if you try something out and you you know you know it's going to be okay at, in the long run. But what I like to do is uh, is try out different things. Uh, I love movement. You know, I insist on it. So if there's a walk by, I get the walk by, and like if it's an interior scene and you're in a big room. I'll have the actors walk by, walk, you know, keep the distance from the microphone and they'll start in the corner and they'll walk to the other side of the corner, still talking. So you kind of feel the Doppler of them, even though it's a mono signal, you're still hearing the off, on, off, off, off of their voices, which I think mixes great. If it's an exterior, they're out on the city, they're on the street and they're doing a walk and talk. I want to have them on mic the whole time. I don't want to hear the room. So what I'll have them do is walk by the mic and pivot at some point and then just kind of walk backwards, aiming their, you know, so they stay on mic, but the distance, you, you feel the distance, but you still get the movement. You get that same effect. Uh, so I set the room up so there can be a lot of movement going on. Again, there's no science, there's no um, rules to doing it. People do it differently, but generally it's what's going to sound the best that's not necessarily going to be mixed up high depending on the scene. If you wanted, like what Brian was saying, like some, some radio stuff, we're gonna get that tight in so you can futz it. And when, in, when I'm in the studio, I record, like if we're doing a, uh, a walkie-talkie type of a thing, police, you know, I'll record with the actual walkie-talkie, I'll record them a one track so it's unfutzed, so it's clean, so they can futz it. I'll also give you a futzed recording and I come right out of my mic pre into, into the recorder uh, with the other, um, walkie-talkie back there, so it's naturally futzed. I think it's a cool thing for the actor to have the actual prop in their hand as they're doing it, and also, I love the way it sounds in the back, and it's quick for playbacks, and it's the real thing. So, again, uh, it, it's a fun uh, a fun day. What Bobby's talking about, like, his movement in his room and experimenting in his room is really a lot of fun. You know, he's happy to, to reposition the mic 800 times a day, put it off and on and, and rearrange it. There's a couple of different phone types that you can pick up and, and hold in your hand when you're making phone calls for actors. We did a session where we had, uh, what was it, a dozen people doing um, like waltzing around your room so that we got movement with conversation and so that people were feeling like they were in the action while they were doing it. Like all of these things of trying to put back the reality of what was happening on set into the recording makes a huge difference. And, and Bobby's always happy to experiment with that stuff. So Nina, when you show up for the loop group session, what have you sent ahead of time? What are you arriving with? No, I always send cues ahead of time, but I also, I have an awful lot of notes for myself. I think I always, as, as, um, as we've talked about here, we never seem to have quite enough money in the budget for the crowd that we the amount of crowd we want to shoot. You know, I'm hoping to try and get many more voices than I can. I always have way more pages than I can possibly get through on the day. So I have my own kind of priority list always of how to cover things and where to maybe go and get grab some wild tracks going through. Uh, if I know that I can use that maybe to cover multiple scenes so that we're not spotting to every single point. So we do send things over in advance. And it also, I was taught with the ADR mix as well about what kind of mic setup we're going to want if we're because we quite often use a boom mic as well to try and get the movement so we'll get them doing all those things and have a distant have distant mics and close mics and get them doing sort of round robins around the mic to get all that movement going up and past and the doppler effects and then for some of them we'll we'll maybe have a boom swinger in there so you get couples walking past and being tracked by the boom and then the boom comes back again and they they carry on and track them through and as you know as these guys have said like movement is so key to everything that we recorded in an 
ADR theatre movement and just allowing the actor to suddenly to feel more natural about what they're doing. And there's just nothing particularly natural about sort of standing in front of a lectern and, and performing their lines. So um, all of that I do find is, is really, really helpful. So as much preparation as possible, I think, generally in sending the lines and, and also thinking about like period pieces and stuff. If you've got a, if you know you've got something that's set in Victorian times, I'll sit there and I'll start making little cheat sheets for the actors that they receive in advance of like how much was a pint of beer back in those days. So that for the pub scene, they know what they're ordering, what kind of foods did they like, what were common names that they might want to call each other. But you do have to be careful because as soon as you tell them something, they tend to all use it. <laughs> So you just if I give them one name or they hear a name from the show, that name's going to pop up. So we always, by every single actor, so we always get to the point where it's like, right, you're banned from using the name Stephen. No more. <laughs> <laughs> That's really true. Nina touched a little bit on um, something I missed out on when I was talking about the planning, actually, which is kind of building up a palette of sounds that aren't necessarily part of the cue list initially, but judging from the game's themes and the region, like the setting, and things like that, I always try and get together a list of nice-to-haves that I'll try and get that I, I just kind of have a feeling that will come in handy down the line for one of the sound designers or one of the voice designers implementing that stuff. So I'll look at the, the, the map world and maybe there's different districts. They might be talking about different things in different districts, for instance, different regions of the world. And the other thing that you kind of have to think about in games is the interactivity, of course, but also the kind of dynamic changing world. Uh, you go to a place in the daytime, it's a busy market town, you want to hear that kind of market wallet that you're used to, but then at night, you come to the same place, you don't want to hear that same bed of ambience playing. So you have to kind of figure, well, is it going to be fine to have nothing or is there going to just be a few kind of sparser crowds around at that time? So all these kind of extra dynamic considerations in games that um, I try not to forget. I <laughs> I have, but I try not to. It sounds pretty fun, actually, like having to go to the same location at multiple times of the day and like paint that picture uh, with voices. Sounds, uh, sounds like a pretty fun experience. It is, yeah. And then you also have to, of course, think about well, what if the player disrupts that crowd? Like what if someone stabs someone and how, how are the crowd going to react? What's going to happen to that audio? Is it just going to fade out? Or is there, can we record a nice tale leading into uh, a, a panic you know, cue, those kinds of things are often, uh, you've got to think about that as well in the prep yeah, time. absolutely. So something that uh, has happened in the last couple of years, as we're all very, very familiar with, uh, COVID has happened. And uh, the idea of having a bunch of people in a small room yelling has become something that isn't as acceptable anymore. Uh, hopefully that will change. But I've had lots of guests on the show recently talk about how this change has been revelatory for them because instead of getting one recording of the entire group, they're getting a bunch of individual recordings. Bobby, how much of a pain in the butt has that been for you? I'm sure that like quadruples the amount of work you're doing, but it also quadruples the amount of work on the back end for the dialogue editors. I guess for the group, maybe Bobby can start. Is this something that's going to stay? or No, I, I don't think so. Uh, and the reason why I think the groupers might like it to stay because they can stay in their pajamas at home, but it comes down to acting and it's hard to act or be somewhere, you know, city or whatever the shot is, or whatever the movie is, uh, when you're in your closet. It's difficult to be, even though you're in the studio in these cases, you're with the other actors, so you feed off the other actors. And it's very difficult to do it remotely as you're isolated and then 
usually we'll bring them together with a Zoom as a visual, and I take their audio tracks in, we bring them in. There's the one positive thing, and I think everybody will agree, and any ADR sound supervisor will agree with this, is the fact that you can isolate the tracks. Because there's always one voice in a perfect take <laughs> always. that you want to get rid of, always. And it's always been a thing. This has been since they've been doing group. You know, you're able to go into your ISOs and lose that one voice if, if it's not working, and then you're, you're good. That's the positive. The negative is no movement. You know, I was saying before about how important, Nina mentioned the same thing. It's so important to have uh, the movement, and yet you're sitting, again, in a situation, and, and you're either walk-in closet if you even have one or in your room and it's just you can't really stray off mic situations because not only the mic's really not that great but it's also their environments aren't studios this is a in here this is a, a dead environment studio with a floated floor on springs so you can control the liveliness we can't do it from somebody's uh, house they don't have a studio so it's been an issue, but we've gotten really good at it. We weren't the first to start doing it by all means. We kind of came, came a little late into the into the world because we were using cutting rooms down the hallway as studios. So you had like each actor. Doing that and bringing an actor. So they had their own private room and we're very COVID safe here. So we went through all the protocols and they would come in and they would get their own private rooms and I ran mics down the hall and we could cover a 10-person group, especially if, you, if you're, they're coupled, if, if they're a married couple or they live together. It was okay with SAG if it could be in the same room. We started that way, and we were early doing that. So as home recording became, people got more, you know, we kind of figured it out more. Um, it's got its pluses, but really, as far as I'm concerned, once we're back, we're back because there's nothing like – being able to act with somebody, doing the walk and talk, you know, and being able to physically act with them. It's, you, again, these actors, they feed off each other, and it's really important part of, of, of group. Brian, how, how have you found the tracks in COVID times? Everything that Bobby is saying is correct. Um, I'm very happy with some of the group sessions I've had uh, for the series and the films that I've done during COVID. But that being said, you know, there's a lot of, like, emotional space that is lost in the track. I am very active on the ADR stage when I'm directing. I'm usually standing up with the actors, walking them through body language and giving them things to react against and, uh, you know, giving them little pushes or things like this or, you know, some physicality things to give them a surprise or directing them up or down or whatever it is. And none of that stuff translates at all um, in the Zoom medium. No one is paying attention to my little window in a wall of windows it's very hard to get something that feels as authentic as everybody performing together, playing together in the studio. I'm with Bobby. I'm really hoping that it changes. Like I can see principal ADR going this way for a long time, but I would really love to see uh, loop group go back to everybody in the same studio, uh, same theater, all at the same time, you know, working together. I think that organic nature, um, just produces much better track. Besides that, the audio that you're getting at the end of the session is very static still, and it's on mic. You, you don't have the, the ability to record something wide or off mic with these home setups, so everything is on mic, and it's really not the way to do group. Again, like I was, I was saying in the studio, I'll have these guys, we have room mics, we're 16 feet away. That's what you kind of want, that, that we want to deliver these tracks to the mix Again, treat them like effects tracks, so they're going to subtly sit in, and you know, with these 
home records, you can do it. You can take something and you can throw it behind the door. You can pan it as a walk. It, it, but it's every it's on mic. It has to be on mic, and that's what that's what you're getting, and that's what we're delivering to the mixers. And the mixers know they understand what we're up against, and some are good with it, and some just like us, you know, we'll just use production or whatever or effects, but. Our hands are, are tied, basically, with how we can record this stuff. And a lot of the microphones that they're using, again, aren't, aren't really up to pro what they would use on a set. So it is what it is. And, you know, and, I, and I, I'm looking at it now as we're, we're actually finishing movies and we're creating scenes. And, we, you know, I just worked on a big HBO job uh, that takes place. It's a period piece. And we got really decent stuff from home stuff. But as happy as I was with the quality of it, it's still nothing like getting everybody into the room for performances. Tim, you actually, I saw you post a video on social media. I think you know which one I'm talking about. Where you figured out a way to do a large uh, loop group session uh, with a bunch of people. Do you want to explain how you went about that? Yeah, I mean, I got pretty lucky, really. Um, The last big project I was working on, the video you're talking about, it was a Ubisoft project. And they have a very large motion capture stage that we could make use of. So uh, I am all too aware of how lucky I am to have that resource uh, at the time. And also we, COVID protocol when we came to record was such that people, a certain amount of people could be in that kind of space at one time, as long as socially distanced. One of the engineers at UB, uh, Jacob Thiessen, he came up with what he dubbed the octagon of safety, <laughs> uh, which was essentially a lot of large baffles in the round and actors were face in towards each other, but they'd be socially distanced with baffles between them. And yeah, it worked out pretty well because we kind of had the best of both worlds in many ways. I was a lot like Brian, where I like to kind of get in amongst the crowd and, and, and use my body language and, and conduct them in a, in a sense. Um, so I could do that in the center of the circle, which also made me feel like a, like a badass. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of the actors could see each other and still play off each other. The downside is, as well, of course, is still there's, there's that lack of movement um, still. Uh, we could get around that with some of... Th- the smaller group cues where they could walk around the mic in small groups whilst remaining socially distanced. I had, I went a bit, a bit crazy. Like uh, Bobby was talking about, it is a fun time to play around with with mic positioning. So we had, I don't know, 20, 25 different mics just set up, including all the actors with their individual um, ISO mics. We had uh, an MS pair distanced and um, a small portable recorder really distant and then um, an Ambisonics mic in the middle as well. So there was a lot going on. Yeah, it, it worked out pretty well. And we still had the benefit of being able to duck down those voices that just poke out a little bit too much with the ISO tracks. Yeah, we should just mention really quick that the example you just heard of that recording is the camera mic. It's not all the the actual mics in the room. Uh, and if you want to see how that was all set up by Tim and his crew, you can go to uh, tonemenderspodcast.com and navigate to the page for this episode and uh, the video will be posted there. So a couple of you have brought up the idea of directing the loop group. 
Uh, let's talk about kind of the, uh, I don't know if politics is the right word, but the stage politics of who gets to talk to the actors. Are you in the room with the actors? How do you go about directing the loop group? Uh, Nina, do you want to take that first? Sure. It really resonates, you guys talking about that. I, I often feel like an air traffic controller when I'm with, <laughs> with the loop group. It's all like, and those signals just don't work over Zoom, of course, you know, so you are getting very physical with directing them through. I mean, I work very closely with um, uh, the casting agent who usually attends the session as well um who's very familiar with all the the group that have come in and each individual uh you know their specialty and what they're best at and who might be good for this role or that role of of individuals that you're spotting on screen that you want to give voice to um so we work together really closely kind of um just trying to get the best out of them and keep keep the energy up and keep everybody very excited uh, about what they're doing, which, as you say, you know, is getting everyone together is absolutely key for that. Through uh, COVID times, we've sort of, we've started trying to figure out different ways. I mean, as you know, we've recorded a fair bit of Loop Group outside anyway, so it just seemed natural to carry on doing that kind of stuff. It's obviously completely tricky for anything that's very sync. So, you know, we always have to do sessions in the studio to capture the sync stuff where we really need to kind of get actually crowbar some voices into mouths. But um, a lot of the crowd we use, we can use as sort of, you know, it's setting the scene or it's creating a scale or a depth of crowd um, in a street or in a concert or whatever. So in that sense, it doesn't need to really be synced to picture. And it's so we've just carried on doing the same kind of thing. So we've shot crowd in a couple of schools. I've just kind of begged, borrowed, stolen, go, can I go in there? Can I bring some recorders? Can I bring some microphones? Uh, go into your playground and, and record in there. We've also started using um, my local football stadium. <laughs> Which is only, it's only a small football stadium, but it's great because they've got all the facilities for sort of green room area, which is really quite large. So people can be, we can open all the doors, make sure it's ventilated and they can pop in there for their breaks, but they've got plenty of space outside. And again, that gives us the capacity to put mics everywhere. As you were saying, Tim, we've got mics at many different dif- distances and capture that real reverb. It is so key to just... Um, get the reality of what you're recording and as you say in that whole it's great having the single mics but them all being on mic is is problematic when you get to the mix because we're everything that we're doing is fakery so as soon as you add fakery on top of fakery which is like adding plugins to try and create some some sense of space in your recording of course it all just pushes you a little bit away from believing it so being able to record it authentically on distance mics, you, you know, you just you just can't beat that. Having this sort of distance between the microphones has been, you know, so actually quite a good thing. I mean, normally we'd do outside stuff, but we'd have a boom and they might all come together or they might go in groups and do small pairs or fours or all those kind of things and they'd all be gathering. But as soon as COVID kicked in, the first session we did, which was quite early on in the pandemic, where we were being very, very strict, we did it entirely outside and we had a, you know, a strict two metres between every microphone and each individual artist had their own microphone. Um, and we didn't swap. We cut out the boom and we just made sure that they, they had their own mic for safety. Again, it's we've been able to record like 20 people at once but actually have quite good separation on their individual mics outside. So it's almost like you've got the best of all worlds in that way. So looking on the bright side, that is one of the positives that that has come out of it. Sounds pretty amazing. It's fun. It's loads of fun. (laughs) Yeah. Brian, how do you go about directing your uh, sessions? I'm pretty hands-on. The jobs tend to trust me. The director tends to trust me. And so 
they know that I'm in there to get stuff to support the movie. The supervising sound editor trusts me and and so I'm in there and I'm, you know, I'm getting what I think is the right thing to get all the way through. Working closely casting with the our casting directors and our coordinators and they know what I'm looking for. We've worked together for years and so like I can give them a, you know, I need a this kind of person or that kind of person, a dozen of these kind of people and so on. And then some of the stuff I'm doing is not really what we're seeing on the screen. You know, like if we're in a restaurant, I'm not going to shoot eight people having little peas and carrots conversations. I'm going to put them at a table, you know, with some cutlery and with some, um, you know, glasses and let them have a casual conversation. And I'm going to shoot that four or five times with four or five different pairings so that I can, when I'm editing it, start to paint a better picture um, with their conversations and let it have you know, a little bit more of an ebb and a flow and, you know, and prepare it in a way that is much more prepped like an effects pass so that when it gets mixed, there's a lot more control over how things are put together. I try and let the actors do what they get to do, you know, like giving them a short two second cue, give me the perfect thing for this moment never works. You know, they never nail it the first time through. So I tend to record 40, 50 seconds too long on any given take. Um, let them get their sort of improv brain turned off, run out the one or two ideas they've already put into their head, and then they actually have to think, and then they become a more of a real person, and the content becomes much more usable. So I'm using often the end of a take that is, you know, 30 seconds, a minute past the moment that we beeped in for. By doing that, it, it speaks to something Nina was talking about, like how can I reuse these materials all throughout the movie for five different tabletop conversations, I can use that in every restaurant scene in the entire movie. So I may have taken longer to do one cue, but it addressed four scenes. Um, and so like that's a time management thing that you start to figure out um, you know, through all of these sessions of like, how can you be really efficient? You don't actually have to touch every moment in the movie. You have to touch the important ones and gather material that recycle, repurpose. Oh, there's this little four syllables of something that don't make any sense, but it's the right frequency to drop into this other scene so that, uh, you know, it just fills the little hole in the dialogue. You felt like there was somebody in the room and then you move on and uh, you don't really think about it. I'm thinking about those kinds of things a lot, like how to be efficient with time, but also get the most natural sounding performance as possible because everybody says loop group is horrible. It's very rare that a director is excited about Loop Group. Everybody has um, their opinions on how horrible Loop Group is, how horrible Loop Group actors are, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I'm very happy to let all of these incredibly talented actors actually get a chance to perform um, and show what you can really do with Loop Group. Because it's, this stuff doesn't exist in effects libraries um, and rarely does it exist in production. And so it really is, you know, we are painting the middle ground between what is our, our lead actor's world and what becomes the effects world. So we're painting that, that four to 10 to 15 feet zone between what's in the foreground and what's really in the background. And so that's where the whole second layer of life really like starts to play out in the movie. So without quality stuff, it just gets turned down real low, slapped a lot of reverb on it, and it just sort of goes away spending the right time to record quality material 
I'm always happy when I get a lot of Loop Group into a movie because it means I did my job well and allowed, you know, actors to do their job well. And uh, that's always a good feeling. Very well said. Yeah. <laughs> that was very eloquent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Bobby, what is uh, someone who's coming in to do their first uh, Loop Group session with you? What are the uh, common mistakes that you can tell someone's not hasn't been around the block before? What can someone do that kind of pisses you off or tips you off to their uh, lack of uh, experience with this? It would definitely be fake voice, like, uh, you know, like a not a cartoon voice, but something that they're trying to be unique about. The idea, and I always tell this to the group, and I reiterate it all the time, we want everything to blend in. So unless we're looking for pokeouts, we want you guys as a group to all kind of work together. You don't want to have a stick out. And the thing of it is with group, it's it's difficult too because, you know, they're getting paid to be here and they're doing a job in their mind. They want to do a great job. So they want to have their voice, you know. And ideally what we want is everybody, depending, you know, if we're doing a walla pass or, 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 you know, just a group pass, everybody to kind of stay in that same realm so it'll work as like a bed and nothing will be poke out. And if you have that voice, that'll be, that's usually the case. But I find out that a lot of uh, actors that will come in and be, uh, this will be their first time doing it, are really good at it because they're not overthinking it as much. Or it just seems like, you know, we'll get a lot of, we get good performances once they warm up to something. But, you know, it's a difficult thing. It's like, uh, especially if you're tracking sync, you know, this one over in the corner up there, you know, you got to watch the sync and get it to the point where it's believable. Again, it's going to be mixed way low. The audience is never going to hear it. It's it's a subliminal, you know, what you see in the theater that you're not going to think about it. And that's what we want to do. We don't want it to all of a sudden go, we got a weird voice coming from that lady in the corner of the screen and take you away from, you know, Tom Cruise. So it's it's the idea is... The blending, you know, if, unless we, we look for call-outs, and we do that as a part of our, our day, too, to get peaks so we can have these voices come out, we can mix them real low, and it's not a peeve because it happens all the time. It happens even with the pros that are here all the time. You just got to say, you know, just can you bring up your pitch? Can you lower your pitch? You know, just to kind of let everybody kind of meld together as a group. So, Bobby, when Nina shows up and tells you what mic she wants you to use, because she's got that Oscar in her back pocket, you're going to listen to her. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I, now, I like the collaborative approach. <laughs> Let me just say that. Uh, if, Nina, if Nina's coming in, we're all ready. You know, we're ready for anything. But when uh, someone that you're not as familiar with or haven't worked with before, if they show up to the session and start asking you to use certain mics, is that something that you like or don't like? Or uh, No, it, it happens. You know, we're here to make everybody happy. You know, we're not redefining. I, I say it's not rocket science. There's a science to this, but it's not. You can overthink this very easily and you can over cue it very easily and you can over, you know, I want to do this. I've had people come in, they want to use a DPA microphone. Fine. We use it. In theory, a DPA microphone in a space like this isn't really going to give you what you want because you don't have the space to really let it work, which is basically a stereo. It's a three mic. You know, it'll give you left, right, and center. It'll give you that Doppler effect. Again, if that makes you happy that you have that, absolutely we'll give it to you. And I've got big sound supervisors that swear by it, and so I do it for them. And I'm, I'm happy to. It's just it's a little bit of a pain in the neck because it takes me off my game of what I listen to normally. So, but we adapt. If if it's a some new sound supervisor that comes up with a great ideas, again, 
group his time to fuck around with 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 recording. So it's I'm okay with it. Again, I'm also used to hearing what I hear, so it does hamper then the way I'm going to monitor things. So I always back it up with what I know, familiar, and I let them use their wacky mic setup, and they probably use my mic <laughs> in the end. So what is your mic? What is your mic setup? I mean, you know, I use a Sheps uh, up front because it has a wide uh, diaphragm where it'll capture. If you have nine people standing in front of it, it's usually everybody's kind of caught up. Everybody will be on mic-ish enough. I use what I use in here. They're all production mics. They're all booms. You know, 81s, uh, Sheps, whatever works. It's it's really the space and the performance. Like, you could probably use a, a handheld 87 and record group, and it'll work. It's getting the performances and, uh, and the right sound, and, and really the microphones are are a plus, you know, but it's, it's not necessarily going to make or break your group. And Brian, how do you go about uh, interacting with the recording engineer versus also interacting with the actors? Do you, do you just leave the recording engineer and trust them, or are you talking? I think it's a back and forth. I mean, like, I know what I can hear live in the room, because I'm not... I like working without headphones on, you know, like I'm, I'm interacting with them. And so like I'm hearing what they're doing live, but I am regularly checking in with Bobby or whoever studio I'm in. Like, what did that sound like to you? Can I hear that as a playback? Sometimes you're hearing things not as dynamically as you want to in the room, but you hear the playback and it's actually better than you expected. And sometimes you have the opposite. Um, and so I'm constantly checking in and leaning on them. They are ears that do this on a regular basis. And so, you know, trust what they do. I'm in their space. If they tell me it's not working, let's figure it out and make it work right. I may not have thought that we got a great performance, but I'll look back and Bobby will be like, wow, that one was really great. It's like we're doing a production team at that moment. Like, you know, we are collectively working together to get the best possible thing. So I think interacting with your engineers and your recordists and your mixers is all important stuff. Everybody's in this together. No one should feel like, you know, relegated, like, oh, well, you're just the person that's putting this down for us. Like, we're all in this together. And the day is a, is a collaborative day. And the more that we can be a team, the better results we're going to get all the way through. Very important, too, is is when we play this stuff back, if Brian wants to hear something, we're not playing just the Walla or the group that we just shot by itself. We're mixing it down. So we're ADR mixers is our, is our title. And basically, we're just live mixing this stuff. So it'll show you how, it'll give you a feel of how they're going to mix it. It's important for us to kind of play this stuff back as they're going to use it. So if we're, if we're recording, you know, I don't know, it's a park and, and some, they're having a football catch. They're going to be right on mic or mic-ish and they're going to, you know, be giving us this loud, these loud voices. I'm going to take this stuff to play it back. I'm going to put it so far back in the distance with volume, maybe a little bit of reverb or whatever to, to you know, just kind of sell it as how it's going to be mixed. And then that'll give Brian and Nina or everybody a, an idea of how it's gonna work in the film and then you know but meanwhile you're getting your tracks and it's two loud voices you know naked by themselves without any effects on them it's our job to kind of like show how it's gonna work no it's true bobby's playbacks are always really smooth you know there's always some fill to it there's always some space there's some thought there's like oh you know it's like it's being written through it's, it's being crafted and presented plenty of times where it's like hey i can play that back for you better let me do it one more time and again that's part of the that's part of the team aspect like we're all working together and it's fantastic i feel lucky to have worked with bobby for years and we have a good understanding there's now a shorthand in place 
that's not always the case, but if you give everybody in the room respect, they're going to give it back to you and you're going to get good work. Trust your engineer. And if they are saying that, hey, this doesn't seem like it's working, take them at their word. You're in their space. Figure it out together. We'll send this to Tim first. And if anybody else wants to jump in on this, you're directing people. You're uh, using your arms up and down. You're gesticulating wildly. How do you also take notes on uh, which are the good takes? Or how are you relying on keeping the information so when you go back to your edit system, you uh, aren't just staring at a million hours of material and nowhere to start? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yes, I do like to gesticulate wildly, it's true. <laughs> uh, but in between takes, I'll be taking notes. I have a laptop in front of me. I'll just make a few notes, whether a take was good or not, or whether there's something within that that stood out as something that would be really useful for a particular scene. But more often than not with games, everything we get could be useful. So I might make a note that something is completely unusable for whatever reason. Maybe someone said a word that cannot be uttered for, for legal purposes or something. But generally speaking, um, there could be gold in, in, in a lot of that stuff that I may not necessarily pick up on the set. And I will also trust the engineer and, and ask for their opinion. I will take it all back and I'll go through it and I'll edit it after the fact um, because I have a bit more of the luxury of time. I'm also not always the one to implement this stuff in the game. Like a lot of the time it's going to a sound designer or it's going to someone who's in charge of the cinematics to put into our cinema tool or even it's going you know across the world for, for a different team to, to use in, in um, whatever mission they're working on. So my job really is to package up a delivery that is useful for all those people and, and easy to, to get their head around. So it's not a perfect system by any means, but I would go through, like I said, after the fact and try, I actually utilize the UCS uh, file naming system okay. to make it abundantly clear just from looking at the file name, what was contained in that file. I also attached a lot of metadata in SoundMiner um, and embedded that to the files so that people could get as much information just by looking at stuff. And whether there was anything I thought useful in the take, I might put in the metadata as well. And additionally to that, I'm going a bit off piece from your question, but I would have a, a folder structure just in, you know, in Windows or whatever, and, and you could see if it was a wallet for a particular scene, it was organized by the cinematic names. And then the palette stuff, the wild stuff, was in its own folder, which was also subdivided into like what kind of uh, crowd it was. So the challenge is really to make it as accessible to as many people without them having to think too hard. And even with those additional mics, it's great to have them, but with games, you don't have, quite have the luxury of knowing exactly where it's going to be played back in, what environment that's going to be in. So... I've done outside Waller before and I love doing that stuff because it just sits perfectly. But in games, unless your whole game is taking place outside, then there's a good chance that it could be played in an interior space. So you have to kind of think about making the end result as malleable as possible for the people who are going to be implementing it into the game. For ease of use, I would usually, I mix down the ISO mics into a stereo track and then also the... Um, the ambisonic mic, because that was a bit more of a useful perspective as well. And so those were the two stereo things you could get if you just wanted to not dig in too much to the different mic uh, that we recorded. But I also made the Reaper sessions available to anyone that would like to sort of dig in deeper, maybe do their own mix of the ISOs if they wanted to different voices to stand out. 
I mean, they could even pretty much remove all the female voices or the male voices if they needed to as well. So, yeah, don't think I answered your question particularly well there, but <laughs> I meandered around. But hopefully there's some useful info in there. Nina, how do you uh, t- take notes and manage the session? Well, it is tricky. I always come in thinking I'm going to take lots of notes, but I've come to the realisation now that I am just like waving my arms like a mad thing through the duration of the session and absolutely shattered by the end of it usually. So obviously if I'm in a studio, my ADR mixer, if we play stuff back, you know, if we're trying stuff out, as Bobby was talking about, we'll have a select track because we know that, you know, something is popped in, we've got some good bits in there and that will work. But I tend to now, if we've got a big session, I'll bring along an assistant or an additional editor to sort of take the notes while I'm kind of speaking (laughs) the whole day and waving my arms around. It is very handy to have someone who's kind of got an eye on that. But again, much like Tim, we listen through everything. And what we'll generally do is we'll have our cue names for things, but we'll then go through and all the material that comes back, we will go through and catalogue it and rename it uh, and create a, a, a kind of a library for whoever's going to come to it and edit it so that you can pluck things. And it is that whole, you know, we've we've touched on this scene, but we can use these people having dinner for another scene. So we kind of, we know it's, you know, a couple talking about da 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 whatever, and we'll type those kind of things into the names we sort of do a combination of trying to capture as much information on the day because there will be things that pop into our head or things that you don't want to forget but usually you take that material away and that's when you start living with it and you're listening to it in a detailed way and you start actually editing it yeah at that point kind of the names are meaningless really you're just you're you're listening through and you're you're cutting all the best bits together it's interesting that you mentioned uh, how tiring it is because yeah it is absolutely exhausting it it's is, true. isn't it yeah <laughs> and so yeah and taking notes is maybe the last thing on your mind a lot of the time no exactly if you're not tired at the end of a day of group uh, you've done something wrong yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if your group have got no voices left you also, well, they can still speak you've done yeah. something wrong yeah, that's exactly right yeah that's exactly right big part of the directing I think is is to keep the energy up yeah when it needs to be up yeah and, and that that is a tiring thing to, to be doing it is yeah. especially when they do repetitive stuff they're quite often having to do the same sorts of things over and over and over again so to make them do it again with energy <laughs> yeah yeah one more time so Bobby what does someone leave with when the session is over what are you delivering with COVID, we actually have a cool method where we break it up. So not only do they get the ISO tracks, which is everybody's microphone from their feed separately, I also do a mix down. So I'll break, if I have a 10-person group going, I'll take five of them and put them on one side, five of them on the other side. So ultimately, the editor then can actually, if they don't even want to go into the ISO, if they think all 10 people is too much, so they could just drop one side and go, or listen to either side. Again, another advantage to this, but um, they'll just, you know, in a Pro Tool session, we'll clean it out. Everything will be labeled. Nina mentioned a select track. If we're redoing an individual or something, we'll build a select track, but ultimately, they're just going to get, you know, the files down as, as we laid them down in the time sync. And um, that's pretty much it. I mean, we record everything. Generally, that's it's simpler. You know, it's it's not a crazy session that they're you know you're going to be looking for things. Everything's time stamped. And just one final question for you: How often does like a above the line person show up? Do the directors ever show up for loop group? Like that's pretty rare, right? Certain times when the film director will want to be part of the loop group, and if they understand what group is, it's great. 
It's great to have their input. It's great to see, you know, it's important to them. They'll understand it. We do get the occasional director that doesn't understand Loop Group or will come in and listen, you know, cold on something that we're doing. And they're like, you know, what the hell are you doing to my movie? This is, and they really forget that this stuff is going to be mixed down. It's going to be cut. It's going to be edited. You're not going to really hear it. You're just going to feel the voices. I had a director years ago. We were doing a movie. It takes place in a disco. And he sat there, and he was like pacing back and forth in a room. And he's like, those two people in the back booth over there, it was like Studio 54 type. I got to have them be saying something that's you know pertains to the time. And he's walking back. And we spent 10 minutes of, of him trying to come up with something when there's no way you're ever going to hear that mixed in with disco music. You know, It's going to be played so low. So it's an understanding, and it will slow us down. It slows down the, um, the motion of the session. And again, it's a good thing if they understand group and how it's going to be used because they'll be able to look by some of these performances and know that I'm, I'm not going to use that or I love that. And... It's a whole different world when a director is involved in the group session. But I personally, I prefer it when the editor is just here because they know what they're doing. Like Brian was saying, the film trusts him and he knows what he's doing. And then it's more of a collaboration with someone like myself or any mixer to be involved in the session. And it's, it's like too many chefs in the kitchen. So we kind of have to bow out when the director's here. But again, we, we give everybody what they want. And that's, that's the idea. I totally agree, though. It is. It can be tricky. And I think, you know, we're all, because we do it so often, when we hear group performing, I'm sure you guys are the same. I'm editing it in my head as I'm listening to it going through. Yes. So I already uh. know as it's going through which bits I'm going to use. But obviously that's something that we've learned over many years of doing this. Whereas I think, you know, to come in, into it as a director I'm, and you're used to directing principal actors, of course, you're sort of presuming you're going to hear every piece of it. I think, you know, loop group actors, and it's no reflection on them, they do need to be kind of wallpaper. And as you were quite rightly saying, Brian, they kind of, you know, they get, they settle down into something a bit more normal a little while into the take. And and it's a hard thing to do. It's actually quite hard to sort of make up a fake conversation and, and sound real and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it, it's, it's quite right. I think it, you need to, you, you need to know what you're dealing with when you're working with loop group so that you can actually sort of appreciate the session and appreciate the bits that have gone well and understand that you have to record way more material than you're ever going to use to get the bits of gold out of there and the bits that are going to work. Thank you very much for joining us today, everybody. I think this is a really great talk. Not only did I learn a lot, I was entertained. So what more can I ask? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, and uh, hopefully we can all have you back on soon in uh, part two of the Loop Group conversation in a little while or something like that. Absolutely. That'd be fantastic. I'd love it. Look forward to it. Really would. This is fun. (laughs) Awesome. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 